that pride might have translated into a different business model. You know, mm. maybe this disastrous decision that this industry took 25, 30 years ago to give away everything online for free, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Maybe loads of people would have taken the route that we've taken and said, no, actually, if you want to do high quality local journalism, you need to get, you know, five quid a month or 10 quid a month from your readers. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Media Voices podcast. We are the weekly media podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from around the media world. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And we don't have Peter this week, but we are lucky enough to be joined by Simon Owens, who is the host of The Business of Content, which is a media industry podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. And that extract you just heard is from my interview with Joshy Herman, who's founder of The Manchester Mill. The Manchester Mill is a newsletter-based news source for the north of England's most vibrant and beautiful city, although I am biased, and it's supported through subscriptions. So in this episode, I asked Joshy about why local journalism demands having boots on the ground, his previous work at The Evening Standard and at Babe.net, and how he plans to expand into new cities and new revenue streams. But before then, we're going to crack on with our news roundup. And Esther, how would you best describe this? Because it's not really necessarily news so much as a bit of an update on how something's been going, isn't it? Well, it's not, but I think probably given who you're interviewing, this is also quite relevant. <laughs> yeah. It's another Substack story. Um, but so we spoke to, well, Casey Newton left his job at The Verge last year to go solo with his own newsletter platformer. Um, and he this week he published a post on Substack basically detailing what he's learned over the past year on everything from sort of converting subscribers to running his own publication. Um, and there are, you know, I know we talk a lot about sort of solo entrepreneurs and, and Substack and, and what's going on with all of that. But I think there's quite a lot of lessons for people of any shape and size in there. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I think... Yeah, he seems to be doing pretty well, and yeah, we'll go on to the the whys and wherefores later. But I think probably a bit of the back, a bit of back of the envelope maths. He, he's probably making between three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars a year by himself. So it's all right for some. It's not bad. It's all right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's basically like you said. We are we're discussing this now because, it, like you said, content is content is content to some extent. And for people who are looking to kind of strike out on their own and make their own little media businesses online, Substack now seems to be one of the most viable ways of going about it. But there's some really interesting stuff in his post that I think speaks to it being slightly more challenging than we should have expected. So, for instance, um, he's talking about the fact that it's a hits business. So regular columns that he publishes barely move the needle in terms of subscribers. But any deep analytical pieces or inside scoops typically outperform the rest. And Esther, I know you were surprised by the fact that interviews don't seem to have any impact at all. People don't seem to respond well to them, which makes no sense to me because we're an interview-based podcast. So what does that say about us? Um, I mean, I, so I don't know how much that is specific to, to Casey himself. Simon, I know you wrote a piece um, actually also this week about your own experiences because you sort of... It, I think it's all right for the big players like like Casey, but there's this sort of middle class of Substack writers mm. that I, I know. I know you you sort of perhaps maybe didn't didn't agree with all of the lessons in his um, in his piece. Well, I mean, I think one thing to remember about Casey is he's kind of an outlier. He was already a high profile writer for The Verge. Uh, he had over a hundred Twitter hundred thousand Twitter followers when he left The Verge. What's the most amazing thing of all about 
what happened with Casey that I don't think you're going to see mimicked anywhere in the media industry is that The Verge, for some reason, let him take his entire email list with him. And especially as this, you know, the whole Substack trend accelerates and more and more high profile writers leave their mainstream publications, you're going to see, uh, you know, these publications become very guarded with all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of amazing that they that they let him leave with that. So he had some, you know, very, very huge advantages that the average um, Substack writer doesn't have in terms of an already existing audience, a lot of blue checkmark Twitter followers who, you know, basically endorsed his, his newsletter right when he was launching. Um, you know, it did bring true for me in terms of the little kind of opinion pieces. Every now and then I'll write like a take that gets shared a lot and might drive a decent number of, uh, uh, of new signups. But the ones that really do drive the most signups are uh, the ones where I'm sharing some kind of original information, an interview, long form article or something like that. Mm. You know, funnily enough, I try not to make my newsletter about me, but like whenever I do these long form posts about my own personal experience, that's what drives a lot of attention. Like you mentioned this piece I wrote about, you know, being part of the Substack middle class. That was probably my most shared piece, one of my most shared pieces within the last uh, several months. Sorry, Esther, I'm just going to say we're nicking those ideas, by the way. Those, we are now <laughs> going to be exclusively personal stories. I think there's, there's kind of some differences here as well between what drives newsletter signups and what drives paid conversions that he was talking about. Um, and I, and he, he didn't sort of comment on whether his interviews with people like Mark Zuckerberg and you know, Snap CEO Evan Spiegel had driven newsletter signups, which I'm sure it did because of the publicity. But it was just the fact that he said that those didn't drive paid subscriptions. And he, he, his quote sort of said, um, almost no one becomes a paid subscriber because they liked an interview. And I just, I just thought that was interesting, a little bit brutal, actually. I think it's because people don't understand the difference between a personal newsletter and, a, and a, like a corporate entity. So like people who subscribe to the New York Times, yeah, they have some brand affinity with the New York Times. But the main value proposition is... Um, is that you want to get access to the paywall stories. You want to get access to all that amazing information. Whereas with newsletter writers, there's something a little bit more personal. Like it's a little bit more about brand affinity, more kind of like the public radio. We are we are paying to support you as an individual. And so I can see that's why the analysis pieces, which are probably carry a little bit more of his personal voice, are better at converting people into paying subscribers. So as to how many subscribers total now, is he looking at and what's the kind of conversion rate? Well, he's he's got almost 50,000 people subscribed to the free version of the Substack newsletter. That is with a caveat that he walked away from The Verge with about half of that. So, mm. you know, great, he's doubled his subscribers, but he, he's already got like a massive platform to base that on. Um, he says that Substack told him to expect about 10% of those to pay. So straight away, you're looking at quite a, mm. <laughs> quite a lot of money there. Um, and his subscription is about $9 a month, or he's got sort of bigger options if you want to pay more money. I was going to say, what's, what's um, Substack's cut from that now? Uh, well, again, he had a deal with them that they paid things like his health insurance. And I, I believe that they waived the um, the cut for at least a year. So he's, mm. he's had a lot of advantages in that sense, which, which he does acknowledge. But so, he's having problems with, as many publishers do, he's having problems with churn. Um, this is about 3 to 4% of his subscribers drop off every month. And, you know, you've got to try and replace that as well as try and grow at the same time. But here's, here's why I, I kind of struggle with this, because you would have thought, because 5%, he's saying it's kind of edging closer towards 10% now, but that is still relatively 
I suppose, low compared to wider propensity to pay for news. I know this is a much more niche service. You know, why is it that even somebody like Casey, who has all these advantages and all this expertise and, and produces some fantastic content, why is that lower necessarily than we should expect? And is that something we're going to see across the entire kind of paid for newsletter board? I think like one thing to, remember, to think about with like Substack is it doesn't have the robust uh, list cleaning services that, uh, you know, something like a MailChimp has. So some people have pointed out that, you know, a lot of those people who signed up for his list were probably more casual subscribers who may not even be opening every email. They may have moved on to a different job. I've seen some better, you know, conversion rates for someone who, for people who, you know, clean their list every two months or so and get get rid of the inactive subscribers. But I mean, you know, the 5% number that checks with me on my end, like if you do, I did in my newsletter, I did some, you know, I reverse engineered the math to show like how hard the newsletter economics are. And so if you were adding a hundred new free net new free subscribers per week, it would still take you four years just to reach that 20,000 number. And most of <laughs> the, the vast majority of newsletters. Oh yeah. I'm not even going to look at our stats. There's, there's I mean, no way. <laughs> <laughs> but this, doesn't this speak to another thing is that you wouldn't expect a publishing company to launch and instantly be profitable. A lot of, a lot of, you know, Axios, I think is only just getting to the point it's approaching profitability or I think it's had its first profitable year. Yeah. You got to think of like the savings in the bank as being like, if you were a larger publication as being like the Investment, like even pre-internet, I remember seeing some quotes from like Condé Nast or Time Inc. or something that like their their normal expectation is it would take four at least four years for a newly newly launched magazine to um, to reach profitability. So I mean, you think of that time horizon, you got to think it's probably something similar for you know a solo writer as well. Yes. The thing I thought was particularly interesting about this is um, he talked a bit about um, the Discord. So he, he launched a Discord channel that's exclusive to subscribers. Um, you know, interviewed Mark Zuckerberg on it, a couple of things like that. And Simon, I know you've got um, you've got a Facebook group, haven't you? I, I don't know if you find the same thing that that helps add a little bit of value. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, I have a Facebook group. It has like six hundred members. I only promote it within the newsletter. It's not just limited to paying subscribers. Like anybody who's uh, you know, signed up to my newsletter can come in, but I do, my hope there is to increase by, by giving people, I'm super responsive in that face group. Like I always make sure to answer people who ask questions or comment or whatever. And my hope is, is that it, it forges that personal connection and might help me in terms of increasing my conversion rate for paying subscribers. Like the great thing about a community is it once it reaches a certain size, it starts becoming self-sustaining mm. and you don't have to like the, the value is actually created by the community interacting with each other. And it, it becomes less and less of a problem if you're not like as long as you're piping in as the as the writer, you know, every now and then to certain discussions. But the the that the, the community starts should start kind of generating its own value in and of itself. It's also worth noting that Casey and that that asked in that particular thing, he teamed up with like five other well-known newsletter writers. And so basically the deal was if you were a paid subscriber to any one of those newsletters, uh, you got access to this community. So then they were able to get some kind of some bundling effects without having to share revenue with each other. Mm. And like, you know, different creators could pick up the slack by jumping in and and communicating with the community without them all having to do do it all, all around the clock, which is... Yeah, totally. That absolutely makes sense. 
It always comes back to collaboration, doesn't it? If you're going <laughs> solo, it always comes back to collaboration. So the, there's a quote in what Casey said where he says, the only way a Substack grows is through tweets. And he's not talking about, you know, tweets as a kind of generic term for social posts. He's talking specifically around Twitter. So why is that? And what does that say about the, the current limitations of discovery for newsletters like this? Well, I think he the example he gave is that, he, and, and this comes back to what Simon was saying, that it's all right that he's got loads of blue check followers, that blue check, like his subscribers will share like a paragraph or an extract in a screenshot on their Twitter, and it'll get loads and loads of likes, loads and loads of attention, and then drive subscriptions. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think that's really something a lot of other people can mimic. Feel free to disagree with me. If people want to screenshot our newsletters, go for it. <laughs> Yeah, I just think like Twitter is the place where journalists hang out, um, especially like, you know, Facebook, especially now that they're downplaying news more and more within their algorithm. It's just not a place unless you write about like puppies or politics or something like that, that have these kind of like very general uh, like I have a Facebook page. I have my Facebook group, but I have a Facebook page as well. And I've completely abandoned it because the the engagement on it was just so low. So Twitter is really kind of the water cooler for journalists. And one other point on this is I think inadvertently, he just did a big uh, endorsement of Review, which is mm -hmm. the newsletter platform that's the competitor Substack that's owned by Twitter because Review is integrated directly into Twitter. So you don't have to necessarily send people off of Twitter. So you could... so. Uh, it may you can potentially if if it's true that Twitter is the main uh, driver of new signups, then it's better to uh, possibly use a platform that's owned and integrated with Twitter than one that exists outside of Twitter. Yeah, I dropped that in the uh, in the news roundup just because I, I imagine there's kind of the the team behind Substack sitting there going like, why would he say it though? Why did he have to do that? <laughs> and then the final question I wanted to ask is in that he basically says he he feels like the the wave of people leaving publications to start their own kind of individual media businesses on Substack has crested. Yeah, I think he's kind of speaking to the harsh economics of, of newsletters in the sense of like some of these, a lot of these star writers who had a hundred, you know, over a hundred thousand Twitter followers have, have and wanted to make this jump path. And then a lot of people who, um, who have smaller followings of that have made a go at it and have seen how difficult it is. So I think the next trend, and you're starting to see this, is, is more and more writers teaming up on things like writer collectives. You've seen, I don't know if you guys saw The Defector just announced it reached 40,000 followers subscribers after its first year. Yeah. That's a bunch of, um, you know, former... Um, former writers from Deadspin that had teamed up. Um, th there's the Discourse blog. There's the uh, every, I forget what the name of the other collective is. Uh, you see a startup that just launched called Puck News, which is like, like four or five star writers. So I think that's kind of like the next evolution in this kind of uh, migration from working from mainstream media to, uh, you know, being kind of individual sole proprietors is like you're going to start seeing more and more of these journalists team up on publications together with joint ownership. I'll tell you what from experience there though the economics are no easier if, if you're splitting revenue between a group of you. Just, uh, I was going to say could we not lure some people across to join the Media Voices Collective wouldn't that be pretty good? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now onto the news in brief uh, they're talking of Substack watch out Substack because Google's internal R&D division has a new project called Muse Letter. I hate that name. 
<laughs> which allows anybody to publish a Google Drive file as a blog or newsletter to their m- newsletter <laughs> public profile or to an email list. I don't see that happening at all. It's not the same thing. It's it's trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, surely. Yeah, it's this boring enterprise product of Google. And one thing I noted is that you know Google once well still owns, but uh, it owned both Google Reader and mm. Blogspot. You know, thinking about 10, 15 years ago, which back then were like in these incredibly pu- like popular uh, publishing and reading programs. And but it basically let them die on the vine, so it could like you know waste a billion dollars on Google Plus. <laughs> You know, what if it had combined those two products together to create like a robust like publishing and content reading platform with an already existing community? You could see something like a newsletter product being launched out of that. But instead, they're launching it out of this boring enterprise product, uh, Google Drive. And moving on, The Guardian has decided to make its print circulation figures private and put more focus on metrics that reflect its, quote, diversity of journalism, readership and business strategy. So the papers are going to continue to be audited by ABC, but the figures are going to be kept private. This follows a bunch of other papers in the UK. I think maybe The Telegraph did it first. I think Telegraph, yeah, a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, and at the time we sort of said, well, the fact that The Telegraph has done it has created this unfair advantage for The Telegraph because it can share its stats. It manages to avoid the print is dying narrative, digital reach, and the ability to kind of monetize a certain section of your audience. They are are better indicators now of the health of a news brand necessarily than than just the print circulation. I just think it's a little bit disappointing. Minute Media has raised tens of millions of dollars in a previously unreported funding round in a partnership with sports betting giant FanDuel. Minute Media is looking to invest more in sports betting and FanDuel wants more content. So that looks like a good match. So I uh, actually had the president of uh, Minute Media on, Rich Routman, on my podcast, The Business of Content, about a year ago. Really interesting company. I don't think people who work outside of media really know what Minute Media is, but it's raised a lot of money uh, from venture capitalists, and it's just buying up a lot of sports media digital sites, uh, and it also some other random sites. Like I had the the editor in chief of Mental Floss, which isn't about sports at all, mm-hmm. or kind of like obscure trivia on my podcast as well, and they bought them up within the last year. Um, you know, it's just it doing some interesting stuff. It has its own uh, content management system, mm-hmm. and so it's trying to argue that you know by basically buying up a bunch of properties within this niche and then giving them some custom technology. There will be a lot of synergy there, and then that will equal profit. So interesting company to watch. And B2B travel industry site Skift has undergone a de-branding. That is not rebranding, that is de-branding, according to co-founder Rafat Ali. So their new design is basically stripped out everything like colors, um, adornments, logos, and quote, other crap, according to co-founder Jason Clampett. Um, and the idea of this I said they are now a subscriber-first business, and so they're just going to act a bit like Medium and take out anything that is um, superfluous to a good reading experience. Uh, <laughs> Chris, you, you don't look impressed. I don't really understand it because even if you take out, say you, you take out the masthead, you take out the colours, you take out kind of all that kind of stuff, is that not itself the new brand? It's not. A I, I, brand, I think it's, it's just probably a easier to. It's easier to think of it as a bit of a clean. Okay. So they've just done like a spring clean. I think that's not absolutely essential to reading. They've just taken out. Uh, moving on, Fortune has appointed the first female editor-in-chief in its 92-year history. So Alison Chantal joins from Business Insider, where she was employee number six uh, and will oversee all the content on Fortune's multimedia platforms. 
How often do you think about fortune these days? I feel like it's completely fallen out of the conversation in terms of like impact. Mm -hmm. You can't really, even though it's a business funded, you know, business focused publication, I don't really ever think about it. I feel like I hardly ever read it. It's, it's really isn't that relevant of a publication anymore. I feel like the Washington Post is launching its own digital advertising network. It's had Zeus Prime for two years now for a select group of advertisers, but this is the but this is the first time it's opening it up to other publishers. So just for context, like, you know, we think of the Washington Post, but ever since Jeff Bezos, uh, Bezos uh, purchased it a few years ago, it's really like he's really doubled down on hiring a ton of tech and design people. And they've built uh, their own uh, publishing or publishing CMS called Arc, and then then concurrently they created Zeus, which is its advertising uh, platform. And I think this is uh, Bezos' long term play. Like you think of the Washington Post and the New York Times being in competition with each other, and they are in some ways in terms of competing for scoops, competing for hiring journalists and stuff like that. But I think like the long term ambitions for the Post is like the newspaper to almost become secondary. Um, he's Bezos is really looking to build an, an infrastructure that scales well beyond the post to you know hundreds or thousands of other publishers to create you know enough synergy and self-service advertising uh, products so that it can become uh, you know a real competitor with ad dollars you know against like Facebook and Google. And finally, happy birthday to the big issue. So the magazine, which is aimed at providing a route out of poverty, has turned 30. And while so much of the publishing industry has changed, we at Media Voices are Amazed, we spoke about it so much during the pandemic, uh, how quickly and effectively the team at The Big Issue has adapted to match. This week I spoke to Joshy Herman, who's founder of the Manchester Mill. It's a subscription-based newsletter, that seems appropriate, that focuses on providing local flavour and news to the population of Manchester. And a few of my mates up there are subscribers, as it happens. But I began by asking, what is the problem with local journalism to which The Mill is the solution? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the problems go back a few decades, but like with a lot of structural changes in industries, they've only really started showing up in a really extreme way that the consumer, that the reader might notice and probably in the past five or six years or so. I mean, the problem is that there has been a hemorrhaging of resources and of journalists in local and regional media. I mean, the same thing has happened in national media to a slightly less extreme extent. But, you know, there are national newsrooms that have fewer what we'd call like real frontline journalists operating now than they had Mm. a decade ago. And that is very, very noticeably the case in local and regional media. I doubt that there is a single newsroom that was around 25 years ago that has more journalists now than it had 25 years ago. And that's if you make sure you're defining journalists as like people who actually have time to do journalism rather than sort of churning loads and loads of things out. But I think anyone who lives in a city or a town or a community in in this country that isn't in London Mm. will have noticed the trend of their local newspaper either getting much thinner, having way more stories sourced from social media, sourced from the wires, having a lot more stories from another area because their paper has been merged in some sort of corporate, you know, thing with with another paper, or their paper doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And that has all come about because of a huge 
decline in the revenue being generated by local newspapers. I mean, effectively, these companies used to have a almost a, a, a monopoly on local advertising. Not quite. There were other ways to advertise if you were a local hairdresser or you're a local garage or a local estate agent. But the local newspaper was by far the mm. dominant one. And that meant that local newspapers in a town like Wigan or a town like Bolton or at a place like Manchester or even in the, t- the tiny town where I grew up in Sussex, they actually were making really good money. They had healthy profit margins. They had loads of journalists. They had editors. They had feature writers. They had theatre critics, you know. And there has just been an absolutely enormous collapse in the revenue that those businesses make. And therefore, there has been a totally understandable um, decrease in the number of people they're employing to do journalism. And that is a huge and very, I think, noticeable problem. So how much of that is because of the kind of the historic structure of the newspaper industry where there were those huge owners, you know, we're looking at Reach, we're looking at what used to be Trinity. And they were kind of forced to cut their way back when that advertising, as you mentioned, did disappear. Yeah, I think some of it's got to do with that corporate structure. But I don't think this wouldn't have happened if they, if these companies hadn't been, you know, um, hadn't merged loads of newspapers together mm. and sort of massively consolidated regional local news. Part of the consolidation actually started to take place when the declines in revenue started to happen. You know, perfectly profitable com- family-owned local newspaper companies started selling to the big corporates because they could see their profit margins disappearing or thinning out. And I don't think, I mean, you know, if, if everything had still been independently owned, like it could have even been worse in some mm. ways because you know, some of the efficiencies that exist for these big chains wouldn't have been there. On the other hand, there might have been more pride in the product like I think the more corporate layers you add, the more executives, the more middle managers, the more you know pressure you have from you know uh, people who own your stock on the stock market, the more things like that you have in, in big company setting, the, the further you are from your content, from your stories, there might have been more pride in the stories if they'd all been owned by family companies. And those that pride might have translated into a different business model. You know, mm. maybe this disastrous decision that this industry took. 25, 30 years ago to give away everything online for free. Maybe that wouldn't have happened. Maybe loads of people would have taken the route that we've taken and said, no, actually, if you want to do high quality local journalism, you need to get, you know, five quid a month or 10 quid a month from your readers. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. Hmm. Um, so who knows? It's, it's, it's an interesting counterfactual. I would say the massive revenue declines would have happened either hmm. way. And I think that's been happening in Germany. It's been happening in America. It's been happening in in the UK, all these sorts of economies have had the same collapse in their local newspaper markets. So I don't think slightly different corporate ownership would have changed things. But yeah, may- maybe there would have been uh, some examples of people um, going for subscriptions earlier. And I think that would have massively helped. So is the problem as a result of these cuts that we're seeing kind of an anodyne, undifferentiated local news provision, where there is very little that kind of separates it and actually m- m- makes these, these outlets unique? That is definitely a big part problem. Like the, the fact that you know you've got stories being written about social media, kind of crazes. You've got stuff about people who've just gone on TV and said something vaguely controversial, and you've got them appearing on the Manchester Evening News, mm. the Birmingham Mail, the Liverpool Echo, the Sheffield Star. I mean, I've even seen some of that sort of stuff on the Yorkshire Post. 
I think that is reducing trust in media because it means that your local newspaper is way less distinctive. Mm. I mean, local publications should be reporting on their areas and stories that have a bearing on their areas. And those stories should be, you know, unique to their areas. If those stories are suddenly popping up from loads of other sites in slightly rewritten form, I think that's, you know, inevitably the next time you turn up on the website, you see that you're, you're going to be a little bit less interested in feel a little bit less connected to that publication. So, yeah. Nice. Well, that is a perfect segue then, which is what is the Mills kind of identity? What is it proposing to be that kind of relationship between it and its audience? Yeah, the relationship with the audience is actually really key. So the Mill is started as a newsletter doing high-quality journalism about Greater Manchester, very small volumes of stories, low volumes of stories, one deeply reported story per day, but really trying to put lots of effort into them so that each one has you know, multiple sources in it or it has like proper document research or it has like a real like thoughtful take on, on whatever that issue is. Um, and now we're, we're, you know, we're slightly branching out from just being a newsletter. Like we've done just on a long form podcast with uh, Tortoise in London um, about some, a, a, a bit of investigation we did in Oldham. We've ju- we're just starting to do our own weekly podcast in the next month in which we summarise news in Greater Manchester. We, we're actually, I don't think I've announced this anywhere, but we're actually going to do an annual print edition, which is just going to be all wow, our best Wow, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's amazing. I think we've just, we've recently done like a sort of um, eight minute video about a story we're doing, like a sort of mini, mini documentary about um, delivery drivers and Uber Eats drivers in, in Greater Manchester, featuring loads of interviews with them. Actually, the video was done by a rider himself mm-hmm. um, out, out and about. So like, we're doing different things in different media now. Newsletters are our core there are sort of pivot point people know if they subscribe to the mill they're going to get good journalism and newsletters but we're trying to do other things to complement that um and um and increase the sort of richness of our our offering nice that's fantastic it seems like right place right time in terms of being a newsletter based proposition if you look at where a lot of the investment's going it is around that kind of direct one-to-one relationship between an audience who has elected effectively to receive this content directly yeah exactly I mean, the relationship is key because I think in the digital era, the relationship between newspapers and their readers grew further apart. It became less of a relationship. And I think the more that online ads, display advertising became the main business model for uh, local and regional media, the less you needed to care about Mm. the readers because you just had to pile them up. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of that move away from scale is something, and particularly outside of London, is something that we've seen a couple of times. So the overtake as well that's obviously closed last year. I remember Robin yeah. Vinter said much the same. You know, she was saying that kind of it wasn't an experiment that failed. She thinks that there is a real case to be made that you can do this and do it really well. So yeah. what is kind of the mill's current structure then? What is, you know, how many writers have you got? How many people are you sort of bringing in on a freelance basis? I hired our first staff writer in March. That was Danny. And she had been on a sort of internship placement doing one day a week alongside her journalism course for six months. So she was kind of one of our first freelance contributors and then became our first staff member. Mm. Then we hired Molly um, in, you know, I think it was June or July. I think it was June. So she's our second staff writer on the mill. Then we've got a guy um, called Jack who is doing a couple of months for us on shifts. Um, and he's also writing. So there's kind of four of us in the office most days mm. at the moment. And then in Sheffield, running the Tribune, which is our sister newsletter, um, that's Dan, and he um, is, is full-time. He moved over from the Sheffield Star, or the Star in Sheffield, and um, he's doing a, a brilliant 
job. And then in addition to staff, um, we've also got Sophie, um, who is doing kind of editing for us um, and uh, a bit of writing as well. And then we've got loads of freelancers. I mean, I think we've published probably like maybe 35 or 40 different freelance contributors over the past year. So nice. lots of really good freelancers, including experienced people who've been in Manchester forever and like students and people who have just left the MEN or, mm. or that kind of thing. So yeah, huge range of contributors and they really enrich what we're doing because they, they bring loads of new perspectives. So it's a, it feels like a real, a real good gang. Nice, good. And then I suppose I, I know the answer to this question already based on what you previously said, but to what extent is it important that you do have people who are embedded in kind of Manchester, not just as you know residents, but as people who understand the media landscape as a whole? Yeah, it, it definitely is. I think um, maybe like experience and contacts can be overstated in importance. I think there are certain types of journalism roles where like contacts are really important. I think the type of feature writing we do, where we try to dip into a community, go and speak to a few people, try and have impromptu conversations with non-famous regular mm. people on the street sometimes. I mean, like this afternoon, our newsroom is, our tiny, tiny newsroom is empty because Jack, Molly and Danny have all gone out just to, they've gone out into different bits of North Greater Manchester for, for this piece we're doing, for this series we're doing. And they're just going to go and, find people to write pieces. They have nothing mm. organised. They've just gone off to do it because that's where some of our best reporting comes from. So I think, you know, we don't have people who are like really deeply embedded in the media culture here because they tend to be younger because that's, you know, they're the people I've found, they're the people I can afford. They're the people who really understand the vision of what we're doing. But what they do have is they have this sort of energy and this um, perspective of, let's go and chat to people. Mm. You know, let's not just speak to the PR on the phone. Let's not just wait for the wire copy to drop. You know, let's not just go and speak to contacts of mine. Let's go out and like have original conversations and create fresh contacts. So, you know, in a few years time, I think, these young reporters will be incredibly like deeply embedded and will have great contacts. But yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's interesting in light of what I've heard that, you know, the, the rungs of the journalism ladder have almost been um, kicked out um, as a result of kind of that cutting back of provision within local newsrooms. So the idea that you can provide these young writers, these young journalists with an opportunity to go out and do this kind of old school type shoe leather journalism is, is fantastic. So one thing I did want to ask about is revenue model. So exactly how are you sort of monetizing your audience and what are the plans for the future in terms of that? Are there events on the calendar? Yeah, so there are no events on the calendar at the moment. We're all subscriptions. Um, they're actually like memberships, but people pay seven pounds a month uh, to get effectively more of our journalism than you would get for free. So a lot of it's free. We do a big weekend read, which tends to be quite a long piece on the weekends for free. We do a big Monday briefing on Mondays. It's bringing you up to date stuff that's going on in the city, bits of journalism here and there, nice pictures, um, recommended reads, that kind of thing. It tends to have one story in it with a bit of reporting. And that's all free. And then if you want more of it, if you want to get it on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday as well, um, you pay um, uh, £7 a month. So we've got, I think we're about 1,025 or 1,030 paying subscribers so far. And mm. We're coming up to our first year anniversary of starting like as a proper venture with like subscriptions. It was at the end of September. So yeah, in, in the first year, we've picked up just over 1,000, which is really promising, probably slightly more than I expected given the uh, notorious difficulty of building up subscriptions in the first place. Obviously, mm -hmm. you have to build that critical mass of content and stuff. So, so I'm really delighted with that. Um, we will 
try and bring in money in other ways. I'm sure we'll do events. I'm sure we'll do some ads here and there. We'll never blanket our stories in ads, but we will definitely take the odd sponsorship or ad because it will allow us to do more journalism. Our main revenue model will always be um, from our readers, from our members. Um, and I think that will keep us focused on the most important thing, which is giving them really good quality stuff. And everything else, I think, can be supplementary. So to what extent are you reaching out to them, talking to them about other things to do with the mill beyond just the news? Yeah, we definitely are. So in the preambles to most of our um, stories every day, we have a little update about us or a comment that someone left, or we talk about, um, you know, some feedback we got, or we talk about how Danny's working on this new thing. So we, we like to give little community updates at the beginning, not always, but like people get a sense of who we are as people and what we're up to and what we're planning to do and how many new members we've got and stuff. And also in our fake little Facebook group, about 200 of our sort of biggest fans, but also just like the ones who are on Facebook, um, you know, chat away a little bit and we give them a little updates. So I do little polls sometimes like, you know, would you be most interested in this topic, this topic or this topic or little like bits of feedback. So I think there's a, there's more going on than just sending people quality journalism. It's not supposed to be like highly professional, highly glossy sort of almost corporate thing. Cause I think, we wouldn't really be able to pull that off. And I don't, you know, that's not really what we're about. We're all about, you know, we are a little bit DIY, maybe we're a little bit like homespun. Um, I think people like that. It mm. probably makes it feel more um, authentic and, and, and like they're part of it. And they are part of it because they send us ideas. Today, we even ran like a 400 word story by one of our members because he went on this like um, memorial hike the other day for this big event that happened 125 years ago in Bolton and he sent us a little report so we included it so in a way they're doing a bit of our reporting for us so I'm, I love how much contact we have with them and a lot of it goes beyond just like sending people stories yeah mm. see that's really interesting as well actually bringing the community into the newsroom I think you mentioned Tortoise before and they do something very similar there so I think that's yeah. that's definitely a model to uh, that other people need to be aspiring to um, yeah. you had a little week profile in the in private eye I think it was a week, two weeks ago, we were talking about uh, babe.net. So when you were talking about sort of your community there, was there ever a concern that people would look at that and think that it wasn't suitable for kind of, you know, that there were no lessons you could have taken from that to the mill? Was that something you were worried about? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, when I started the mill, you know, it was, it was a bit of an experiment for me. Like it was mm. a bit of a totally new thing. It was in local journalism, which I'd never really done before. I mean, I've done city journalism at the Evening Standard. Uh, maybe I'm sure I did worry a little bit that you know people might you know might think oh things didn't work out in New York and, mm. and he made these mistakes and, and and that and that means he you know that 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 we shouldn't support the mail. I don't know. You, you have all sorts of doubts and worries if, you know, just human, human worries and, and, and that sort of thing. But I, I think that, um, I think that people are, are willing to, to, to accept that, you know, people can make, make mistakes in life and, and they can learn from them. Mm. Um, and that if you give of your best and, and, and you try and, you know, you work hard to try and build something good, um, that reflects, you know, reflects their city well, and, and and you put your heart into it. And I think people are people are receptive of that. So I haven't had, yeah, I haven't had people ask me about it. But you know, in the back of your head, of course, you have doubts. That's fair enough. And then as a penultimate question, I wondered between you were talking about kind of the sister title and what the mill has planned for the future. 
Is there space, do you think, for more outlets like the mill extending into other cities beyond kind of Manchester and then across the Northwest is my priority because that's where I'm from. But, you know, for sort of, yeah. can you do that model elsewhere in the country as well? Yeah, so we are trying it in a couple of other places because Substack, um, the, which we used to publish, gave us a bit of funding to do that. Mm. So they have a local journalism program. They offered us some funding to try what we're doing in a couple of other cities. And so that's why we're doing uh, the Tribune in Sheffield. We, Dan's, Dan's doing that. Um, we're trying a, a newsletter called The Post in Liverpool, mm. um, which is going to kick off in about a month's time. So I really believe it can work in other cities. Um, the longer this sort of declining quality in regional local media carries on, mm. the more there'll be a demand for new outlets that focus on quality as their main priority, as their main focus. And um, even if it's not us doing it, other people will do it. Like, you know, you'll, you'll, I think you'll have this in towns and cities everywhere. You'll have people coming along with new ideas about how to do journalism that isn't, you know, the Liverpool Echo, or the Manchester Evening News and the way that they're doing it at the moment. So I think, it, I think it will definitely happen in cities everywhere, whether it's us doing it or, or whether it's you doing it or whether it's, you know, anyone else. Um, and I think that'd be a great thing because we need plurality back in local media markets instead of having one big dominant monopoly paper that dictates um, how, how, how the world is covered. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more on that last point. And, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, I mean, it sounds like a lot of responsibility, but also sounds like an awful lot of fun as well. It sounds like that it harkens back to what made local journalism so impactful and so attractive to people in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's nice to be able to hire a young reporter and say, you don't have to write five stories today or yeah. stories today. You can spend a few days on a story or you can spend a week on a story because it's particularly important to us. And you can speak to multiple people and you can go to the local archive and you can dig out some documents. And you could, it's just like liberating because that's, that's how you get the best out of journalists. Like that's, that's what journalism is. You know, It's so crazy that we've come to a point where that's highly unusual. Mm. That's a highly unusual experience for a young reporter in this country. But, you know, everyone we hire, that's that's the instructions, you know, we give. It's like spend proper time on stories, deepen contacts with people, really, like, empathise with the people you're speaking to, think about the history and the culture of the places you write about, be thoughtful about it, get books out of the library about it, and 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 then you'll you'll make something better that's actually worth paying for. And um, so I think so far, like readers are responding well to that. So hopefully that can continue. But then as a very final question, then we always ask all our guests to recommend a piece of media. So that could be a book, could be a TV show, film, absolutely anything you like. Anything that's really made you feel something over the past couple of you know weeks, months, years, whatever. Uh, that's a good question. I think a book that I've kept on coming back to in the past few years is called The German Trauma by Gita Sereni. And for the listeners of yours who don't know who Sereni is, she was a um, Jewish, um, Hungarian uh, journalist, investigative journalist, worked for the Sunday Telegraph magazine and for the Sunday Times magazine and lots of other people. And she just wrote really both sort of beautiful, but also sort of very humane, but also very detailed and very forensic stuff. Mm. And she wrote about Mary Bell um, and the case of Mary Bell. I loved her book about that called Cries Unheard. I loved German Trauma, which is a series of journalism she did in the 70s and 80s for those kind of national newspaper titles, their weekend editions. Um, I love a lot of what she's read, but that book I keep on coming back to because it's just like you can write forensically and 
you can write with real sort of rigor, but also allow people's voices to shine through. And I, th I think that's something she does. Okay, thank you so much to Simon for joining us and for holding up the fort uh, for Peter. Uh, where can we find you? Uh, well, you should definitely come to my newsletter. It's at simonowens.substack.com. I do a ton of media industry analysis and long-form reporting, you know, publish case studies about really successful media industry and media industry practitioners, both on the creator side and at, you know, larger media companies. Or you could uh, listen to my podcast. It's called The Business of, of Content. Amazing. Thanks and, so much. Okay. And thank you for having me. But speaking of newsletters, we also have a daily newsletter which brings you the four most important stories in publishing and media. You can sign up to that on our website or, as we spoke about before, you can do that now from our Twitter profile, which is at Media Voices Pod. Um, and finally, we don't charge for our newsletter, but you can support us either as a one-off or as a subscription via Ko-Fi. Um, if you want to find out the link for that, that's voices.media slash support. And you can kick us basically the equivalent of a coffee or a pint or, uh, yeah, sign up every month for as much or as little as you want. <laughs> but until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and another whirlwind tour through all the news and views from the media world over the past week. Thank you very much for listening and do stay safe. <laughs>